Good evening, everybody. Chris Arches here from the Development Health Podcast, episode number 31, because I vapor locked during the previous uh, promo that we just did. 31, 31 is a prime number, is it not, Ed? Uh, pretty sure that's a prime number, sir. Yeah. So I think prime numbers are a cause for celebration in terms of podcasts. So uh, this, this episode got uh, put together pretty quickly. Ed and I are trying to get into a better rim- rhythm of doing things, uh, doing the podcast on a regular basis anyway. Um, so, but before we go any further, let's thank our awesome sponsor, uh, Paul Reinheimer and his, uh, servant slash founder, co-founder, um, Will, uh, at the Wonder Network. Thank you very much for providing us with the uh, bandwidth necessary to stream yes. the audio. And also I should mention to you, Ed, that Paul came by the, um, greater Toronto area PHP user group, um, back at the beginning of April and did an awesome talk with Mark Story on, um, XHProf and XHProf GUI and kind of get a demo of what they've been doing with it. And it was pretty awesome. And they did it. Yep. Isn't Mark Story that guy who's just a mouth on, on Twitter? That is him. And he is the, um, lead developer on the Cake PHP project. Well, that's exciting. It is. Two legends of the internet in my hometown of Toronto. It's, uh, it's pretty yeah, impressive. That is amazing. Um, there's, a. you know, I don't know if you get the, do you get the music channel Palladia up there? No, we don't. So um, I'm I can't hear it because of course I turned the sound off. But I'd much rather be watching this like concert footage of the Big Four, Megadeth, Anthrax, Slayer, and Metallica. Although I can kind of leave Metallica at this point. Still, but, still um, on the Metallica hate. I know we had a discussion about this in IRC one time or online even. Yeah, I think it was on Twitter. No, yeah. uh, well, I just hate what they've become. Like everything, we hate but we what we become. I know, right? Yes, we become what we hate. Maybe. It's okay, boys from Metallica. I still like your newer stuff too. Sorry. Um. So yeah, uh, we hadn't talked for a couple of weeks, and uh, we've done some stuff since then. Well, you you were negotiating uh, the final details to uh, get yourself a new house somewhere on the better side of town, according to you. Yeah, the good side of town. The good side of town. Uh, where the professors live. And, uh, yes, so it looks like that's going to, I, I, you know, you don't, it's not for sure, for sure until you close on it. But yeah, it looks pretty good. Like we are going to pick a time and on the, on the May 3rd. Yes. May 3rd, we're going to close. So cat, why are you up there? Get down. Cats don't talk, dude. No, they don't, they don't and sp- listen to And me. speaking of cats, uh, my office manager goes in for dental surgery tomorrow. Poor old kitty cat has to get a couple teeth extracted. So I have to fight through rush hour traffic to take him to the vet. That should be uh, that should be pretty awesome. Yeah, I can imagine that would be kind of a pain in the ass. Um, the t- you said tooth problems? What? Yeah, he's getting some teeth extracted. Last time he was at the vet, I know like last year when we took him, they said, oh, I got to wash those teeth. We may have to get some of the ones at the back extracted because they're all inflamed or, or fucked up or whatever. So when I took him back again, the vet showed me and says, see, these teeth are like this. They're supposed to look like this, these other teeth. And I was like, whoa, yeah, that doesn't look too good. So, you know, I made the appointment and I got to take him, uh, take him tomorrow morning. And pick them up sometime in the afternoon. Poor little kitty cat's going to go. Basically, as I understand it, the way that uh, they do uh, veterinary uh, dentistry is they basically uh, knock the knock the animal out with anesthetic and then grab the pliers and yank the teeth out. That's my that's my understanding. Well, yeah, I mean, there's not, I guess, a lot more you can do because the. What are you doing, man? You're rolling around there in your chair. I just moved in my fat man chair. Relax. You can edit out well, and post. I was talking. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, yeah, I mean, the cat can't be reasonable about it, you know what I'm saying? And also, do they, do you think, that, do they have like a little, like a tiny mask for the cat, like for the anesthetic? You know what, I don't know, I should probably ask for some pictures. Yeah, you should definitely get one. That'd be cute with like a little mask around its head, and I, I think that'd be adorable. And I'm pretty sure the office manager's not going to be happy with me um, afterwards oh, either. No, he is not, No. <clears throat> He's going to be very disappointed. But enough about my cat. Let's uh, let's talk about what what I what we want what I want to talk about. What you want to talk about today? So, yep. we have three topics uh, chosen. So that should get us probably through for our usual ninety minutes of nonsense. So the first thing um, I wanted to talk about was um, you're doing a lot of conferences this year, more than me for once, which is kind of interesting because I usually go to a lot. Um, 
and and you're spreading the news of the uh, open sourcing mental illness. You've been accepted at a couple of places, and that's awesome. You know, it is awesome. Um, and you've been getting a lot of love from people on Twitter about it too, which is even more awesome. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I I guess we talked about that some, didn't we? Oh yeah, I, I did. I yeah, I did. I yeah, we did. We did that. talk about. It. So so in that vein, I was thinking we could talk a little bit about conferences that we've always wanted to go to, and they don't necessarily have to be technology related. Though for me, they are, the ones that I would love to go to are technology. Related, so I thought we could kind of get into that a little bit. So for me, the first one I'll start off with um, is one that I've wanted to go to just for the sheer novelty of it is um, a conference in Japan, a PHP one called PHP Matsuri, which I know that uh, Graham Weldon, predominant on Twitter, who's associated with the Cake PHP project, he is now over in Japan and he went to PHP Matsuri. And at one time, they sent some awesome photos where they kind of did like a. At one point, they had a code shaming. Um, talk where people submitted PHP code that was broken beyond repair and all the participants in order to hide their identities went up with those, um, with the Japanese wrestler masks on. And that looked pretty awesome. And if that was the kind of vibe that they were projecting at that conference, I think it would be worth the 24 hour flight and appearing to be twice as tall as any other human, uh, in that country. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, first off, yeah, you would be a total freak show there. And then, uh, secondly, I mean, like more than normal. And then secondly, uh, yeah, I could dig that. I mean, like if you want it, do you think, are you there as much for the, uh, experience of going over to Japan as the conference? Uh, To me, the, the, the big thing would be going to Japan, going to the conference is nice, but just the chance to combine the two, go over to Japan, go, uh, you know, just kind of see what the culture is like and everything there, just do a little bit of the tour stuff and then get to talk to a bunch of people about programming stuff, I think would be a, a very memorable trip. I would probably be curled up like in a ball because I'd be so afraid of like not knowing what to do. But I guess maybe if I had like a buddy, maybe you and I could go together and you could make sure that I don't like get in trouble or get on the wrong train Oh yeah, for, the, oh yeah, for sure. I would, I would definitely do that buddy thing. I would be like, I need someone to come pick me up at the airport and be my constant companion again to avoid like someone to avoid the Godzilla with a beard uh, problem, as someone in IRC pointed out. Yep, uh, I'd be afraid that I've seen those guys uh, with the white gloves who push people into the subway. <laughs> yeah, I've seen and those I'd be too. afraid I would get pushed into the wrong, like the wrong train. And then I'd end up, I don't know where I'd end up, like uh, like in Robotech or something. You know, I remember hearing somewhere or reading somewhere online, they talked about um, in the Tokyo subway system, one of the things that they do is that they, uh, to help people uh, realize what stop they're at, every single um, stop has it, has different music played when they pull into the station. So people subconsciously learn the pattern. If they take the same route every day, certain music will play in a certain order. So if you, because people said to me, it's, it's very common for people who have to travel a far away on the metro. They will literally ask people next to them, when I get to such and such a station, please wake me up. And people are like, you know, reciprocate and do the same thing. So they tried to do this to subconsciously let people know that when a song is, when they hear their subconscious hears a song playing, if they're like half asleep in the subway, their body will wake up and say, Oh, next stop is mine. Which I think is that's, kind of, which is kind of a neat. Uh, I think that was really neat. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I think maybe I would have it, uh, like, give a different uh, level and like repeat number of shocks, like low level electrical shocks, like to all the chairs or something, and maybe like go through, and you could go through the bar too. So like, I I, I was trying to say something funny but it really wasn't <laughs> i got nothing i don't know and that's not even that big a deal i mean i've seen those crazy game shows in japan and they're like you know you have to stick your head up like through a like the a floor and like your head going up through the floor has like meat attached to it and there's like a komodo dragon like on like that then walks towards your head you sure that's not one of your drug-induced dreams? 
no, I saw this. No, this is really a thing. And, uh, and you have to, it's like, how long can you stay there before you freak out and pull your head down so that the Komodo dragon doesn't eat you? Japan is full of some crazy shit. So that sounds like that'd be a pretty cool conference. Compared to what we're used to, I guess, is the proper disclaimer. Yeah, it's really, I'm sure there's, you know, weird enough things that we do. I don't know. All right. So, Ed, what about a conference that you've always wanted to go to but have never been able to make it to? You know, I was thinking about this. And I I don't know if I have, like, if I have a conference that I, I well, you know what? I would like to go to PyCon sometime. Like, I haven't been to that because I haven't, I don't think I've, I haven't been to, like, a, Python conference, and it would be kind of, uh, I think it would be fun to go to one. And I think because I've been like doing PHP for so long that you kind of get to a point where the conferences aren't so much about learning new things at, well, like directly, like you don't go to talks necessarily and learn like, Oh my gosh, I never heard of that. Um, but it tends to be more about like, you know, interacting with folks and stuff like that. Um, so I think for me, cause I'm getting more into doing, uh, you know, more Python stuff. Uh, I think for me, that would be, uh, fun. Um, well, and I kind of like to have that and maybe I wouldn't, uh, I don't know, maybe it would turn into a, a red sexual harassment nightmare like it did this year, <laughs> but, uh, I think that's the one thing that really sucks about that is because apparently they had a really good conference and all anybody could talk about was, this that bullcrap but without getting into that um yeah uh i think that'd be interesting right yes, and, and joel claremont pointed out in irc what i was going to say because i didn't want to interrupt you was that PyCon is in montreal next year so that seems to be a very natural thing for the world's greatest startup to participate in where you go to montreal and with mr sean coates uh in montreal and joel being from montreal it seems very natural that you could all meet up there and go to that conference Oh yeah, well, I think we're gonna have a retreat to get, go to Montreal in nice. July or something. Very so, nice. Very nice. yeah, well, they've got they've been before. Um, I'm uh, girding my loins to uh, be able to head up there myself. Um, little freaked out about I've I've never flown out of the states, so it's a little intimidating for me. I'm afraid that I will say something like I will. I don't even know. Canada's like the U.S. with beer. You'll be fine. See, I think I'm not so worried about that part. What I I, I'm worried about, like the uh, border patrol type, whatever person, and like they get up there, and I they're like, "So why are you coming in?" And I will, I know what I'm supposed to say. I'm visiting friends, which is what I'm doing, but that I will blurt out something like. Uh, drug mule, <laughs> or you know what? The funny thing is that I can actually totally, I can just see you, I can just um, see you uh, vapor locking when talking to one of the border people and just blurting out, Well, I'm certainly not bringing drugs in, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, right. can, I can totally see you doing that, but no, you'll be fine. Uh, the, the two borders are basically indistinguishable these days. I find it's the, it's basically the same experience, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't worry about it at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be fine. You don't, and, you don't fit any uh, kind of dangerous profile anyway, so you should be fine. Yeah. Um, I think mostly I hear not horror stories necessarily, but like from the guy, the guys from Canada who come down to the States a lot, uh, for fictive Canada. And they're like, yeah, they, I got, I had to stand like in, I don't know, customs or whatever for like two hours for no reason, basically. Right. Stuff like that's kind of annoying, uh, it sounds like. But I'll be fine. Everything the the be Nexus fine. card is your friend for Canadians who have to travel frequently to the U.S. When I went down to Buffalo um, last week, um, when I went across the Whirlpool Bridge in Niagara, um, I had to. My entire um, journey was thirty seconds long to get across the border in my car. Nice. It was, well, it was. Sweet. I've heard the car. I've heard the car stuff is easier. Yep, and right. the, and the flying stuff. Too, I have a separate line when I fly, um, and because the Nexus thing is part of the global entry system, so I skip the immigration line at every single airport that has one of those things. So it's, uh, I highly recommend that you tell the people at the greatest startup ever, the Canadians, to go get one of those Nexus cards. It may will it will make their travel to the U.S. a million times easier. So, 
this uh, Nexus card. Mm-hmm. Is that a is that a Canadian only thing? U.S. Canada. Seems like I've heard of that. Now, what, I remember there was some kind of thing called. It was a private company, though, wasn't it? Called Clear. Do you remember that? Uh, a little bit. This is different. This is actually like a joint thing between um, between the the U.S. and Canada. Um, Americans who travel frequently to Canada um, can get into the program, and Canadians who travel frequently to the U.S. can get into it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that might make sense. Yeah, yeah especially it makes sense for the guys who come in more, yes. like who have to go to New York and stuff. Um, I don't know. Maybe they have them. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Maybe, maybe they do. Um, maybe they do. I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter will tell us. Yeah. Which also uh, reminds me yeah. something, too, that Sean Coates um, is going to be coming to True North PHP, as far as I know, because I've asked him to do a keynote. Oh, yeah. I think he complained that it was out by the airport or something. Well, it might be by the airport. We're actually looking for it. We found a location downtown, and we're just kind of haggling over prices. I probably wasn't supposed to say that. Oh, that's okay. That I didn't make that. What do I care? Um, but, uh, yeah, and it's my intent to go this year. Um, I, uh, don't, I, I, it is my number one priority. I mean, unless something better comes up. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that hurts, I, my, man. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I intend to go. The, uh, Hopefully, I'll actually, you know, oh, well, well, you guys actually pay for your speakers usually, don't you? We do. That makes it easier. I've obviously I've got some uh money to work with this time around. Um so that's going to make uh going to these things a little bit easier. I but, believe uh, yeah. uh if I remember the numbers correctly, um from my uh partner for doing this last year, Peter, that uh every single speaker that we brought in got their entire costs Reimbursed. That includes the international people that came in. So, oh, nice. Yeah. So certainly, Mr. Finkler, your flight plus hotel accommodations will be covered by the conference. I remember it was, it's crazy how much money it costs. Like it was, uh, I think when I was looking at flights last year, if I was going to go to that retreat when we were going to meet in Montreal, it was like $800 to fly to Montreal, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, that's, it is crazy. Um, uh, I actually recommended to Americans who are coming up that it was actually a better thing for them to fly to Buffalo and then rent a car and drive from Buffalo because Buffalo is about oh, ni- yeah. Buffalo is about ninety minutes from Toronto, so um, it's it's definitely a lot cheaper. Oh, that yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, that would be way easier. Montreal is a little bit different, but uh, yeah, because I don't think there's like a major international airport just near the border on the U.S. side near Montreal. No, I think the closest stuff is probably New York City. Yeah. Um, which, and then you've got to one drive out of New York City and then drive all the way upstate. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not as easy. So anyway, um, point being, I don't, you know, whatever. That's, that's all fine. But, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, so where I'd like to go to PyCon sometime. That'd be cool. Like, it's funny though. I think I'm, uh, I don't have a lot of like conferences like that I can think of where I'm like, oh, I've totally, totally got to go to that. And I'm trying to think of like ones that I've sort of felt excited about going to in the past. And like I was probably at one time excited about, like, there's two that I can think of that probably I was super excited about. One was probably I was excited about South by Southwest. And anybody who knows me now would laugh at that because I'm, <laughs> decidedly not excited about at least the interactive portion of that. Um, um, and so I, I went to South by Southwest interactive three times and it got worse each time. <laughs> Actually, the first one's pretty fun. And then the second one was, uh, there were fun parts. And then the third one, there were fun parts, but sort of less fun parts. And it kind of became not super fun, especially to go like it was, it was okay. Just hanging out. Like, but I didn't see any point in buying a ticket. Um, but maybe it's valuable to some other people, but just not my thing. Um, and there was kind of a lot of douchiness. Uh, and then probably the other one that I remember being super excited about, um, but I've been to many times has been, it was the O'Reilly open source conference. And I still think that's a really cool conference. Um, and I like that it's so, um, lack of a better word, multicultural <laughs> in the sense that there's so many, there's so many opportunities to like, uh, 
expose yourself to different things and, uh, you know, say like, it's, it's, I can't think of a lot of the conferences where it could be like, well, I'm going to go to learn about like what's going on with the Thunderbird project. And then like, I'm going to, you know, go to some PHP testing talk. And then I'm going to go to a talk about like OpenGL, making interfaces with OpenGL, stuff like that, right? And it's like, there's just so much diversity there, and I, re- I, I really like that. Like, so there's lots of things you can just pick up and say, oh, that sounds neat, that sounds, you know, fun, and that'd be interesting to learn about. And I, I really value that. Um, it is expensive as crap, though, and I still, and, you know, I'm having my, uh, I, you know, thankfully with the generous donations of, uh, many folks, I'm going to be able to, I'm having my travel and, and, and accommodations paid for. Uh, but it is really expensive and I still, do, I don't understand why they can't. Well, I, it's not a matter of can't, it's a matter of won't, I guess, that, uh, they don't cover any, they don't cover speaking, uh, speakers, uh, like hotel or travel in any way as, you know, as far as I know, um, never have. And, but they charge, like, if you buy a ticket, I don't know. It's like, if you just show up and buy a ticket, of course, of course, is always the most expensive and you do it for like tutorial sessions. It is over $2,000 to get in there. Yeah. That's a lot of scratch. I mean, I, uh, I don't know what they're doing, but it just seems, I guess the thing is it's what bugs me is that it seems uh it seems difficult for me to to justify sort of having this open source conference thing and charging that much money and not paying for people who travel and 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 you know pay their own way. Yeah, that, I, I think it, that it seems to me when you when you price it at that point like about 2000 bucks that um you're pretty much making a statement that you're expecting um, attendees' employers to be paying for them to go because two grand is a lot for. I, I think two thousand is a lot for an individual person to drop down to go to the conference. That's just to go. Then you have flight plus um, uh, plus accommodations. So you're probably looking at you could probably easily double that between flight and ho- last minute hotel yep. if you stay there. I mean, how is, is Oscon is like three four days type thing or is it longer? It's a four or five day thing. So you're talking, so you're talking about pretty much all week. So you have a week of hotel and the flight. So, uh, yeah, it gets up up there. So, so, um, I'll talk about another conference that I've always wanted to go to. And it's a newer one. It's called Strange Loop, um, which is, it's in St. Louis and it's a conference about programming languages. Yeah. I, I know a couple of people who are big fans of that conference. Yeah. So I've wanted to go to that, not because like I'm a big, uh, language maven, but I just, I find it, I, I find that I want to learn more about how languages work, not because I want to make one, but because I kind of want to understand how a lot of languages work. And I'm finding more and more as I have to start working with all sorts of different languages and tools that I'm tired of fighting with a tool to try to get it to do what I want. I want to understand what the sweet spot for that tool is for, or for a particular language, what common development patterns, what, what idioms do they have? how best to use something to accomplish um, a certain task. So kind of hand in hand with that goes my desires to find things that are um, just to find out as much as I can about a language. Say if, if I'm going to use language X, how do, how do the top practitioners uh, typically use it? So I'm, you know, so I, I'm finding myself more and more interested in, in the nuts and bolts of things as opposed to just grabbing the, uh, for lack of a better word, the manual and trying to put the thing together. Yeah, I can dig that. Um, I think that would be interesting. I, uh, I have trouble picking up new languages because I, I, I think I'm, I kind of have this, I always have a slow sort of ramp up, I think, because of syntactic issues. Like I, I just have trouble, like getting my head around, um, different syntaxes and just the way that things appear visually. Uh, like that's a big sort of bump I have to get over. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. So that, that's a reason why I think I always am envious of these dudes who I are like big, what do you call them? Polyglots? Polyglots. Yeah. Um, oh, yep. um, I'm always so impressed that people are able to do that. And I'm just, that's sort of alien to me. Um, I yeah. wonder, I wonder if sometimes, uh, cause I've been thinking about this, uh, that 
that the people, the ability of, of certain individuals to pick up uh, multiple languages and do really cool stuff with them, I think it's because they have way fewer um, preconceived notions about how to build things. Uh, I've, mm-hmm. noticed, I've noticed this kind of paralysis at times with, I find sometimes with programming languages. Uh, it's like you want to build something, but you want to build it perfect. So the more you get into like, uh, this is also the reason why like sometimes people with like 20 years of experience, if you ask them to like do like a programming test on an interview, like FizzBuzz, they couldn't tell yeah. you. They couldn't, they, they, they've actually lost the ability to figure out how to solve kind of an unknown problem that way, one that they, that they haven't done recently. Um, so I just mm-hmm. think some of these people are just like, they don't, they don't worry about how pretty their solution looks. They just, they just have the ability to crank a solution out. And for me, with the emphasis that I have on testing, I find it very hard to let go, very hard to just say, well, let's just throw this um, shit together. Even like even stuff I was doing today, which we'll talk about in the next segment a little bit, stuff I was doing today at work, um, I found myself locked up a few times by the idea of that I had to do this a certain way um, instead of just going with the flow. Yeah, I dig ya. I uh it's certainly you get, you know, I I feel like I'm kind of this a guy who just gets I I'm good at like quickly um identifying patterns and then like using those, you know, if I see something that feels like something else I've done, I can kind of quickly like react to that and connect those dots. But if it's something I'm not used to, if it's like too unfamiliar, I really really have trouble with it. And so um, I think I have more trouble with, say, you know, a lot of the, like the things that I have not done many of those, like sort of programming test kind of things, but presented with them, I have tended to not do very well on them. Um, and I, I don't feel like I'm a terrible developer necessarily, but it's, it, I think it's this, this idea of like abstract problems I have more trouble with. I sort of, it helps me if it's concrete and sort of that, that, uh, that makes it a little more solvable and, and, you know, it, and it's presented in a way, a lot of time for me, a lot of it is the, it's like the visuals of it, you know, that's why syntactically I kind of get hung up on things that look different because I think I don't associate, you know, I have this sort of visual identification of stuff and I don't, if I don't see those uh, clues, that I'm used to, I don't identify it the same way. I don't like say, "Oh, this is the same concept." Um, so I don't know. I'm babbling now, but I, I, I'm. Uh, it, it's uh, it's so it's hard for me sometimes to adapt to that stuff. I always like I always like when I'm learning new stuff or I'm learning a new say language or I'm learning a new framework or something. I always want like the super 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 basic how tos. Like this is type one line, and now type another line and look now it does this and now type a third line and now it does this and i really like that because i think i need to go through those steps at the beginning to like establish that base stuff and then i can start building off of that but if i don't have it's hard for me if i don't have that it's like if you try to shove here's 30 lines of this stuff and like okay this is a simple example well i have to that i i struggle with that because it's like it sort of overloads me i have to kind of build on small th- like really 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 small pieces and build that up so totally understood so so let, let's end let's end the conference thing with one what's another and not necessarily technology technology based conference has there ever been like a like a music festival or some other thing that you've, that you've always wanted to go to and just you just never made it happen I remember uh, probably when I was more interested in music, um, I would have liked to go to the NAM. Is it the, uh, what is, I don't even remember what that stands for. I better look it up. Uh, National Association of Music Merchants. Merchants. And it's like a trade show for, um, people who create musical instruments. I oh, guess. that sounds kind of cool. Right. So and it's a, it's, cool if you are into particularly technology kind of oriented music creation so things like uh like all new synthesizers and new tech stuff and things like that that people are doing in the music area are uh, are introduced there that's like the big show for that and it's it's a trade show i mean um so that was uh, that's something that uh, i've never been able to go to and 
I'm a little less into that stuff now, uh, but I think that would be fun to do. I think the other thing I remember, uh, this was going, this is going way back and I did get a chance to go to this, but when I was a kid, like 15, um, I, I, the big thing was to go to the consumer electronics show because that was, this was well before E3. This was like in the, um, early 1990s and, um, like now they have a, their own video game trade show, E3, and, and they have a couple of things like computer game developers conference and stuff like that. Um, but back then they used the consumer electronics show, which there were two of them. There was a summer one and a winter one. The summer one was in Chicago and the winter one still exists and it's in Las Vegas. Um, well, the summer one they don't do anymore, but I went to the summer CES a couple times and that was pretty crazy because as a kid who was super mega obsessed with video games, um, that was really cool to be able to see where, uh, you know, you'd see video games before they released and new console hardware and stuff like that. And, um, and the com- and computer companies would announce new stuff there too, new hardware, all sorts of different stuff. It was yeah, yeah. So like, um, like I remember uh, a brouhaha about uh, if that this was after the Super Nintendo came out, but Nintendo said they were going to do a the they were going to apparently they had done something where they were Sony thought they were going to partner with Nintendo to make a CD-based add-on, CD-ROM-based add-on for the Super Nintendo, and they didn't. And, like, Nintendo came out and said, like, announced that they were going to do a deal with Philips for this thing. And Sony was like, oh, we're shamed. And um, they, uh, sorry, I got a little close there. Um, They, uh... And they got so pissed off. I guess the guy who ran Sony at the time, or I can't remember his name, got so pissed off that he said, we're going to destroy Nintendo. And they made the PlayStation, the original PlayStation, because of that. That totally makes sense. Um, and But I remember that it was at the Summer Consumer Electronics Show in, I'm going to say, 91 or 92, that uh, that was this big thing where they were like, Sony thought they were going to announce a deal with Sony, and they the Teto came out and said, "Yeah, we're building this thing with Philips." And uh, yeah, like Sony had like all this stuff made up for it, and they were going to call it the PlayStation, and it was going to be for the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo. And they totally jacked them on that, and uh, Sony came back and made the PlayStation, which uh, just to crush them. See, learn something new every single day. Yeah, so that was a pr- that was probably like the most magical thing for me to go to because at the time it was like I was just super into video games. I did like fanzines and stuff about video games. This is pre-internet. Uh, well, I mean, the internet existed, but I wasn't on it. And um, it was pre-World Wide Web, for sure. And uh, it, it was just, that was the only way to see this stuff. I mean, that was the only trait, that was the only place to see it. And it was just amazing. It was super, super fun. Um, so I have lots of good stories from going to those things. But cool. that that was like the biggest thing in the cool, world. Man. So. Yeah, no, CES, uh, you know, I remember those days. Um, I'm an old guy like you. I remember those days. All right, so on to our next topic. Um, this yes. is one that I brought up. I wanted to talk briefly about languages or tools that uh, you and I were convinced were going to suck uh, and actually turned out to be quite usable. So for me, I will use uh, what I've been doing lately at work. Um, Cinecore uses Perl all over the place, um, for server side things, not for, not for web facing things. So, um, uh, I, I, when I was in Buffalo, um, last week, I was participating in a training session where we did TDD in the round where we came up with a problem where we were going to create a, um, decimal to Roman numeral. A uh, little object, feed it a number, it spits out what it should be in Roman numerals. Um, and so we start off just doing the typical TDD thing where you would, uh, you know, first person would write the test, then they would pass the laptop over to the next person, and that person would write the code until the test passed. Then the person who just wrote the code would write the next test, and you would just keep swapping um, back and forth until you got it done. Um, so it was kind of so, so it was kind of so interesting. basically what you're saying was that like, you did this in the thing where one guy was like. I've got a problem. And then another guy was like, yo, I'll solve it. 
and check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. No, exactly. Uh, wow, we're old that we know that. Uh, so the so I mean, I I helped run that and stuff too. But the more interesting thing was the the guy who was helping me uh, run it um, is a big time pearl guy, and so um, I was forced to do my contribution to this all in Perl. So I had to write tests in Perl. I had to write code in Perl. And now I've never been a big fan of Perl. Um, I basically bluffed and faked my way through a course in college. I think I barely passed it. I bought one of those, you know, um, Perl for programmers books, a little thin one, and just copied and cut and pasted every single thing I could just to pass because it happened to be the course itself was at a really weird time when I took it right after we had some classes then we had a three hour break and then this Pearl thing and then we would go home and it was like on a Thursday or something and so I was just not having it just didn't want to do it Um, so now that I've had a chance to work with Pearl um, Contrary to what some people might think, Perl actually doesn't suck. And I'm going to explain why. Why I was surprised by how easy Perl has been to use. Um, Perl does everything with modules the way that we wish PHP was doing um, with Composer. There is um, there is a CPAN, right? Is the collection of Perl modules. There's a Perl module for fucking everything. Um, and when I've searched for stuff on Google, I've always been given... Um, a whole bunch of uh, options on what to do. If I need to parse a date, there's like five different date modules. Um, so, and I, I have found that knowing PHP, um, that the move to doing Perl as actually, it's not intimidating. I just had to learn a little bit of different syntax and I haven't really encountered um, any of the really weird Perlisms that people complain about. I mean, people say, oh, Perl's a Perl is a write-only language and all these other things. I mean, uh, in, in some ways, the complaints about Perl remind me of the complaints that Ruby people have about PHP. It's just, it's really just syntax. And Perl is, lets you do some really, Perl lets you do a lot of interesting things that you can't do um, in other languages. And having been exposed to some of the stuff and being asked to do at work, I can see why they chose Perl over something like, I mean, all our services at work, because we're moving to service-oriented architecture, are either being done in Java, which I don't think I'll ever do, or Perl. So if I want to actually build things um, that we're going to use other than just web-facing stuff, um, I have to learn some Perl. So it's been very eye-opening in that I've actually I feel like I've been productive in Perl with a very um, with a very short ramp-up time. That's crazy. It is crazy. It's just it's it's just kind of funny. I I, I find myself saying, man, like the CPAN thing. This is like exactly what. PHP, this is exactly what Composer's trying to do, except that we don't have, it's, there's no like, um, it's, it's kind of like a weird cross between Composer and, and Pair, I would say, is like the closest, is the closest, uh, you know, um, closest match. It's so, you know, you can search for stuff and you just CPAN install, it searches and finds the package wherever it happens to be on the internet and installs it. In many ways, it's like NPM for Node. And uh, and the Ruby Gem system, I was very surprised. And um, and the funny thing is now that uh, I, I notice now that I'm actually doing Perl stuff, uh, some of the guys at work who do a lot of Perl are uh, are falling over themselves to help me whenever um, I have a problem. And I say, Hey, I want I want to know what is the best Perl like way to accomplish task X. And within like a minute, I have like two paste bin links sent to me. Oh, here's how you should do it. And reading those things, I so far haven't come across anything where I've looked at and, and said, that doesn't make any sense to me, how that is supposed to work, which I think is kind of encouraging, which makes me think that if I, if I start getting a little bit deeper into doing more complicated Perl stuff, I mean, stuff I'm doing right now is parsing Apache access logs and hitting remote databases and doing stuff like that, um, which is, you know, Mickey Mouse bread and butter stuff. But um uh, I just find it interesting that it's not it's not as painful a process as I thought it would be. Yeah, I can dig that. I was kind of trying to think about a language that I like really thought, oh, this is going to be awful, and uh, it turned out I could I actually ended up like using or not even that. And how about something that you that you were going to have to use um, that you thought you would have a hard time grasping? Not because it was not that it was going to be awful. You were just like, I mean, you could even look at your 
Python experience that you were kind yeah. of you were kind of stressing. But I mean, compared to most people, you probably stress out a lot more. I mean, a lot more than I do anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and that's uh, that's yeah. no indictment on you. That's just me because I prefer to be optimist about my uh, ability to solve any problem placed in front of me. But um, but yeah, so so I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, uh, so the pi- you know, that's that's probably been the the uh, the biggest thing for me has been sorry uh has been python and because i've obviously you know made a, a, a most of my data weighted work now is either in javascript or python and um the python stuff uh it, it you know we kind of ha- i had kind of hit the ground running or at least ramp up quickly and that was hard sometimes but what i f- what i think i found from that was some of this, some of it's the language, and some of it are just the core concepts that you understand. Um, uh, Python has a pretty straightforward, simple syntax, and that helps a lot. And I think it makes it easier that you you run into fewer, I feel like, quirks of sort of the language or the, I guess you'd say maybe the ecosystem around it. You know, it it does a lot of things that keeps stuff pretty clean. I guess, and and once you know how it works, then that's the way it works, and there are not a lot of necessarily gotchas with stuff, um, and I like that. Um, and I think, but I think also that you find uh, that the stuff, the basic stuff about building web applications, which I'm, you know, this is what I'm doing in Python, and what I've done in other stuff, and what I've done in PHP for so long. Um, there's not a big difference between those things. Um, you still are dealing with the same sort of core HTTP concepts. Um, you still have the same things with like, you know, the same basic issues of like performance and things come up. Um, you know, wh- how to make things more performant. Um, what are bottlenecks going to be? Stuff of that nature. Um, those things. Uh, are are really pretty similar, and so I think once I sort of started to get a little more comfortable with the module system in Python and some of the uh, sort of the, the tools related to things like, well, where do I get packages for stuff, and how do I set up an environment and things like that? Um, then the, you know the stuff's pretty similar. It's not it's not like wildly different. Like, oh well. I, you know, you have to like do this backflip and, you know, cough three times. Uh, but in PHP, it was totally different. You know, you, you swam a lap. Um, it wasn't, it, I mean, the, the basic stuff is pretty similar. You have, you know, for most things, you have route handlers that map to, uh, you know, handle, you know, you have a route that you define that matches the, the, the request and you have handlers that, you know, handler functions, and, and sometimes you set up little utility libraries where you have to look, call little one-off functions and, you know, that you use for support stuff. And, you know, the same the stuff's pretty similar. Um, I think it's interesting to see uh, also that some of the stuff that you'll get into, it, it's funny, stuff that um, people... Uh, in PHP have tended to move away from. Uh, there's some folks who make, I think, decent arguments for why they should be this way. And here, the thing that I'm thinking of was there's a, there's a, a uh, do, you, do you know the, uh, the website or not the, yeah, the web application Git tip. Yes. Okay. So Git tip is written in this, uh, uh, framework by the guy who made Git tip called Aspen. We talked about Aspen. We did talk about Aspen. Yes. And I thought, and so I came across Aspen again, like a few weeks ago. Like a rash that won't go away. Yeah, exactly. And I think the interesting thing is that what it gets back to is that uh, with Aspen, in a way, it's not a hundred percent analogous, but it's in a way a, it goes back to, the idea of you have instead of having like one big router 
file having a router file and then that calls different classes that you know it maps to or things like that and you have or you have an mvc architecture for your application your web application or what have you um it really is like a one-to-one mapping of url path to file so requests of and the, you know there's a one-to-one mapping there. It's kind of like the old, the, kind of like the PHP and way. Like the old, things. the old PHP way yeah. of doing things. And of course, before, any before P- front controllers ruled the day. Right. And any PHP developer worth his salt would be like, that is a terrible idea. Why would you do that? Although, you know, for what it's worth, uh, Rasmus Lerdorf has said, I think I remember hearing him talk, this was several years ago, but it was like, well, your front controllers is Apache, right? <laughs> and it tells, you know, and your, or, or maybe it was the, the, the web browser is the router and it just says, okay, we'll get this file and get this file and get this file. And then you have this thing separated out like that. You know, I mean, that's, um, yeah, so now, Mr. Laridoff builds web apps very different from the rest of us. Right. And, um, but there's some appeal to that. And, you know, that simplicity of mapping that I, I think I, I keep going back to, you know, ideas of like, well, how do I make this conceptually simpler so it's not so hard to grasp and how to get people up to speed on it and stuff like that. And one of the things that, like, we've been working out for um, having developers at work, uh, work with stuff is and how to make it more accessible to them is that we def- we set up a Python application, we set it up in Flask, um, the, the Python framework. But what we have is um, for our designers types, um, we have basically, there might be a couple special routes, but almost everything just gets passed to a effectively a catch-all route. And then what it does is it takes the whole path, whatever it is for that, you know, for that catch-all, and then it looks up, and then it maps that like automatically to, um, say, template files inside the HTML inside inside of your templates directory. And by doing that, you have basically a one-to-one mapping between. Okay, if you give me this path, it's going to look up this file, and so it says like if it if it's you know foo slash bar slash baz it'll look for the the template foo underscore bar underscore baz dot html and so it's advantageous in a way that you still get like all the flask works with jinja to the template language so you get all this nice templating language stuff that jinja does but it's an easier more comprehensible way of mapping stuff so you don't have to understand like all the rigmarole it might be going through and and like oh well you have to make this route thing and it maps to this well how do i know that those things two things are connected well it just makes this sort of more obvious and simplifies that and flattens that out um and i think sometimes you know we kind of uh we end up wanting to sort of over engineer stuff but for the most part i think you know simpler solutions often work uh, really well. Uh, and uh, let me say simpler, more obvious solutions uh, work well and things that are easy to pick up. Technical debt becomes a big issue. So anyway, um, the whole point was, going back to the Python, I think that a lot of the stuff is pretty similar. And in fact, I think you see folks, um, you know, dealing with the same kind of issues that you deal with in other languages that we dealt with in PHP. And it's not, there's not an obvious like always better or worse kind of thing, you know, um, let's see another thing that I was like that. I mean, for a long time, I didn't do any JavaScript for many years, or if I did, it was very, very small. And like purely, I guess I, I approached it completely procedurally and, um, really had, it was very only occasionally used for sort of like decorative minor decorative stuff. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, it was really uh, my desire to make a project that used, um, I knew a lot of HTML and CSS, and, like, I wanted to make a particular kind of application, and that application, I wanted it to use HTML and CSS. So that forced me to learn JavaScript um, and learn it in and out. And what I realized was it was actually a really interesting and and um a flexible language, but it was also very small. And it's like, I like that about JavaScript. I'm 
uh, sort of not super excited about complexity that might be introduced in the next version. Um, but, uh, you know, that was something that for a long time, for many years, I only, I only used very, very tiny bit, never really thought I, I, you know, anything of it. Didn't, didn't think it, it didn't have much appeal to me, but, uh, I started to sort of discover it as I, I guess I was, I was kind of forced to if I wanted to do this thing, and that, that worked out pretty well. Just to interrupt for one second, in the IRC yep. channel, somebody was asking, asked you about saying they struggle with advanced JavaScript and want to mm-hmm. recommend any tutorials. And while you were talking, I, I said to them, I thought that would, if you want to learn, if you want to get to understand JavaScript enough that um, you start thinking JavaScript-ish, um, would I tell people because I saw other people give the same advice and I happen to agree with it? Go read Eloquent JavaScript. I believe the entire book is available for free online in HTML form. But I liked what the author did so much that I went and bought a cop, uh, print copy to help them out, and yeah. and then go buy a copy of JavaScript: The Good Parts. I think those two things should give you more than enough info that you need to actually understand um, JavaScript and move beyond the um, Google and paste method that many people um, use with JavaScript. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I really like, I think eloquent JavaScript is a good, is a good book to start with. Um, and there's, there's have the quality of books has gotten better over the years. Um, I have sort of mixed feelings about JavaScript good parts. Um, I, I think mainly because I think I see a lot of people say, well, that's just the book you should read. Well, I would say I agree with like, say 90% of what it says, but it's a very, very opinionated book. And it's kind of like, um, if you learn PHP only from, I don't know, like a very dedicated symphony developer, I mean, like the way that you're going to do it is going to be different. And the, you know, if you just assume that everything this guy says is true, that's one thing. I sort of like JavaScript, the good parts as a, um, I think it's a good book to read. I think it wouldn't be the book I gave a beginner because I sort of don't like the idea of, I, I, I feel like you sort of should make up your own mind about a lot of this stuff. And there's some of the stuff he talks about in there. I don't, I don't think it's quite as cut and dry. Well, as, well his JS lint tool is like legendarily brutal for, uh, insulting you over your code. Yeah, right. And, and I don't know, I don't know if there's been a good, a, a new version of JS good parts, like in the past few years. I don't think so. And, and, you know, and the, the JavaScript ecosystem has really kind of moved in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways. I'd say the core language is still pretty, pretty straightforward. And, uh, you know, that has not changed, uh, uh, very much. Um, but, uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff to learn. Um, I think the big thing with diving into with JavaScript is just if you're coming from PHP, I think the big thing that's totally different is the is, there's two things. One is the idea that you don't ever have there's no differentiation between classes and objects. There's no idea of a class in in JavaScript. So that is uh that is, that's, you know, that's, I think that's one of the biggest conceptual things to get over. That's hard. You just make objects. You don't, um, you know, wait around for them to, uh, to get fixed up. And then, yeah, you know, so I think that's the key thing. And then the other idea of having functional stuff is sort of like top level, like having a functional being a first level thing. But, um, it took me a while, like when I was going through, through JavaScript, uh, uh, to, that stuff took me a while to get my head around, but I understand it a lot better now. And it's, and once I, I started to kind of get that conceptually and work in that, that environment, it start, and it starts to click. Um, it was really eye opening. And I think it, it gave me an appreciation for stuff that wasn't in the model that, that PHP follows. And, uh, that was, that was really valuable for me on a lot of different levels. So yeah. I, uh, I think that, you know, those were probably the two things I can think of that were the biggest, uh, biggest things I came out with. I, you know, I, there's probably other stuff out there that, uh, I, you know, you probably find most of the things that we probably derived, deride, is that the word? Um, are probably better than we give it credit. And, uh, and you can be really productive in and do interesting stuff in, and, uh, there's probably the, the the problems that we have with them are relatively minor. 
Uh, but it's easy to make fun of it. And that's part of tribalism, I guess. Right? Absolutely. All right. So let's move on to the last topic for tonight. Open recipes. This is totally your baby, uh, Ed. It's all my baby. So take the ball and run with it. Tell us about it. Oh, well, so it's kind of an interesting project, I think. Um, the short version is that it started when, uh, uh, the, the, I don't know if you ever heard of this, uh, website that was like for recipes called punch fork. I'd never heard, heard of it until I saw, um, the people from the world's greatest startup talking about it. Yeah. So it's a website that you could go and, and what they did was they linked, they linked two uh, recipes where like on their side, on the punch fork side, they would just, they would store like a picture, the name of the thing and like what ingredients it used. And, um, and then, uh, but they didn't, the big thing is they didn't include like the preparation instructions. Like how do you actually, you know, what do you do with this crap? And, um, I, I, you know, a lot, I guess a lot of people liked it. I don't know. I'm not a big recipe guy. Right. Um, but I'm a big, uh, I like having uh data available guy and, uh, punch fork, um, I guess they they uh, scraped uh, their data off of other recipe sites, and but it worked out because um, they didn't have the preparation instructions. So to actually know how to execute the recipe, you have to go to the original you know original URL. So they pushed traffic back to those folks when they found something you were into. But you could like favorite stuff and make lists of recipes and things like that on Punch Fork. Anyway, um, the punch fork thing got acquired by Pinterest and, uh, for one reason or another, I don't know. Um, punch fork had to shut down, I guess. Uh, so that was kind of a bummer because they were shutting down and it wasn't really clear that they, you know, you'd be able to get your data out. It, there wasn't any indication that you would. And I think a lot of people were kind of bummed out by it. And so we looked at, um, maybe building something sort of like uh, Punch Fork. And we went back and forth, and, at, you know, the Punch Fork guy was like, "I please don't copy my data, but probably in less of a nice way. He was a little curt about it, but uh, I guess he, you know, I don't know, he uh, didn't want people to do that and said, well, if you think it's so easy, you try it. And so I guess we did, and um, we've built a... Uh, Built on top of this this framework called Scrapey, which is a Python framework specifically for writing web spiders to scrape data off of websites. And um, by doing that uh, and then writing little spider uh, little spiders uh, to go get data off of different open like recipe websites, we're uh, building a database, like a big database of recipes. And um, we have over, like I just today, we were able to parse in some new stuff. And we have over 100,000 recipes in there uh, right now that we've been able to collect. Damn, that's that's impressive. Yeah, so um, we've it's been pretty cool because we've gotten, been able to get contributions from outside. You know, we've had people writing spiders for websites from outside and also different people who work, you know, at Fictive Kin. Um, but we're running it all as an open source project. So you can go to, if you go to openrecip.es, it redirects you to their GitHub page for open recipes. And uh, that uh, has all the source code we have for the Scrapey project and all the spiders we've written for it and information about that. Um but uh, I guess the two things we've learned is that Scrapey is a pretty cool tool if you want to build stuff like this um, because it's really good for – it has a lot of stuff built in, well thought out for the kinds of tasks you're going to have when you're collecting data and, like, doing it on a regular basis, right? Um, so that's one thing I've learned is that Scrapey is cool for this. Another thing I've learned is that um, – is how much metadata works – or how much metadata like matters embedded inside of markup um, and how much it stinks if people don't do that. 
so maybe now about 10 years too late, I'm discovering that like micro data formats are, are a good thing. Um, because what you find is that there's some like with recipe stuff, there's some websites that mark up their, uh, their HTML in a semantic way following one of the common patterns. Like there's the H recipe format. That's a micro data format. And then there's um, also, if you've looked at ever looked at schema.org, which is like a sort of a uh, a shared um, schema for uh, metadata inside of HTML pages uh, that major search engines have decided that they're all going to work together on. Um, there's a recipe like object for that, um, and but the short version is like. How, like, can I look through this HTML and identify programmatically, well, what are the ingredients and what's the preparation time thing and what's the cook time thing and what's the name of it and what's an image for it and stuff like that. Um, and you find that some people have put some, you know, work into into that. And then a lot of people, um, and not necessarily through any fault of their own, they're just, blog, like, putting stuff in with, you know, regular old blog software. And, uh, it's just, you know, just a series of P tags and there's no differentiation between the P tag that says that's where the ingredient starts and it's, and there isn't. So those are obviously a lot more challenging. Um, and, uh, th so that, that's a mess a lot of the time, uh, but it's interesting, you know, we've learned a lot about it and, and I think, uh, been able to, we're starting to build up something pretty interesting, I think. Um, and it's, and I think one of the cool things is that it's not that hard. I think, um, the, the, the spiders, because Scrapey handles a bunch of the like sort of base level stuff for you, you really, we have sort of a template where you just have to kind of plug in like the, the, uh, queries to get data out of the HTML and, uh, otherwise writing a spider is pretty easy for it, right. To like extract the data out and things like that. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. And even though I'm not particularly like a recipe guy, I really like, um, doing stuff with like gathering data and storing it and organizing it and parsing it and processing it. And I, I really dig that stuff. So it's been a really fun project for me to work on. And, uh, I, I think other people have been enjoying working on it too. So it's pretty cool. And if you're into that kind of thing, you know, you can go to open recip ease open recipe.es and uh it you can go there and check that stuff out and uh you should write some spiders for us for some the we we have like uh we had a listing of i don't know we've added like 140 publishers that we've id'd and we've probably only gotten like 25 of them so far some of them are definitely easier than others there's a few we skip because it's clearly the markup is just like Awful. So there's but, uh, a, so there's a yeah. job for an ambitious hacker to write uh, write custom uh, spiders to troll through someone's site and look for recipes. That's the idea, and you know we're not again we're not taking the uh, not taking the prep data. So if people want to actually do something with the recipe, they have to go back to the original site. So I think it's a good balance where it you know it it's something that publishers are going to be, I think generally have responded favorably to and have been interested in getting their stuff in there, which is nice. They don't think that you're stealing things from them. Uh, so that's good. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun project, uh, so far and, uh, it's been going pretty well. So, uh, so I'm excited about it. Well, that sounds like a really interesting project. So on that note, I believe we've gotten to the end of episode 31 Kind of a, yes. a good end. Open recipes sounds like a very interesting project, and um, that's another area of, of skill that people uh, should really learn is uh, web scraping. There's a couple uh, tools out there. To, I found someone showed how to use Node to do web scraping to manipulate the DOM and stuff, and I, it was very interesting. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But anyway, this has yeah. been episode number 31 of the Development Hell Podcast. Thanks so much to everyone who joined us in um, IRC tonight for your good suggestions and the interactivity thing is always good. So as always, you can find us online. We're on Twitter, uh, dev underscore hell. We have the devhell.info website where you can find every single episode of the podcast that we have done. 
uh, links to play everything, plus show notes so you can actually find more about all the things that we've talked about. Uh, let's th- once again thank our awesome sponsors at the Wonder Network. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Will, for providing us with uh, bandwidth to uh, do the live stream so people can hear us talk. Um, we're available on iTunes. If you grab us through iTunes, please, 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 please go and rate us. Uh, let us know uh, what we're doing uh, that you like. Let us know what you're what we're doing that you don't like. Um, you can find you can find me on Twitter. I'm Grumpy Programmer without the U. You can find Ed on Twitter. He's Funkatron, Funkatron with the U. I'm getting a little punchy here. Uh, yeah. Thanks as always for joining us, and we'll see you guys soon. Take care. Good night, man.